0: Well good morning. Welcome to Bethany. Worship team, thank you for leading us uh, so well before the throne again this morning. Uh, Joe, when you belt out that, that Chorus that we sang this morning, Lord of Hosts, you're with us. It just reminds me of three years ago when we were in Israel in Beit Shan and you went down on the platform in that amphitheater and you sang that a cappella and we were way up at the top, you know, thousands of seats in this ancient amphitheater and we could hear him as if we were, you know, five feet from him and it was just a memorable thing. Um, but if, if any of you are interested ever in visiting the Holy Land. We just this week put some information out. So if you go to the wall right outside my office, there's a poster and some brochures. We're looking forward to taking a team from our church to visit the land of the Bible in uh, the spring of 2024. So it's about a year and a half out. So plenty of time for you to consider it. You can see details there. I hope you have your Bible this morning. If not, grab one from the uh, seat, under the seat near you. But we want to open them together this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Last week, we looked at the New Testament uh, examples of women in ministry. We've been focusing in on this topic this month. What does the Bible teach us? What is the Bible's blueprint for women in ministry. And we saw last week many of the powerful ways that women served the Lord in the New Testament, including serving as co-laborers in the gospel. Uh, They were facilitators of house churches, hosts who brought people into their homes. Um, They were individuals who were highly trusted servants. One we know carried one of Paul's letters to the church for him. We know that they are uh, blessed as, as prized servants in the church. The term deaconesses associated with certain women in the New Testament. And in all of these occurrences, I hope that Along with me, you were struck at how powerfully God loved and used women throughout the pages of our Bible. And this morning, we're going to look together at what will be, for me, the most challenging, uh, divisive passage of Scripture I have ever taught in 28 years at this church. Everybody just say, "Uh uh-oh, right? (laughs) Right? It's coming. So I, I wore my best tie today. Um, I, I, I want you to like me uh, as we approach something. I, I said in your notes, this chapter contains enough material. It's a powder keg ready to explode. And that the ways that we understand First Timothy 2 can blow up friendships, blow up churches all around us. And that is why we must carefully, fairly approach the scriptures and look at them together. Let me just set the, the set the scene for you. This is a quote from Dr. Albert Moeller, one of the top evangelical leaders in our country today. And Moeller, and this is a quote from 2004, so this isn't a brand new quote, but Moeller said this, the gender issue may well be the critical fault line for contemporary theology. He saw it nearly 20 years ago, what was happening in our culture, and he said, this is the fault line. Controversies over the issue involves basic questions of biblical authority, of God's order and design for creation, and Christ's purpose for the church. And I think Moeller is absolutely right. I, I brought a, a stack of books here uh, to show you some of the Uh, what has comprised my study. This book is called Women in the Church. Um, This book was written 20 years ago. Ten years after it was published, they came out with a second edition. And then about five years ago, came out with a third edition. This is unheralded. This book is an exposition of 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 through 15. Six verses of scripture. And, and is in its third print. This is almost unparalleled in Christendom to have a, a study this deep and so broadly received, done uh, by Andreas Kostenberger and Thomas Schreiner, uh, first-rate evangelical scholars. I have this other book called God's Design for Man and Woman and this was written by Andreas Kostenberger who also contributed to this text. Along with his wife Margaret, both of these individuals are seminary professors who love and teach the word and exposit that whole field. This is perhaps a bit of an older book edited by John Piper and Wayne Grudem called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And each of these books are first rate in their scholarship and expansive in their breadth. But I wanna read to you a quote from this smaller, uh, more easy to absorb book. It's written by a, a lady by the name of Claire Smith. Claire Smith is an Australian native a woman used of God in great ways. She's an author and women speaker in her country. She loves the Lord. She decided to go to the local Bible college. She earned a bachelor's degree, went on to a master's degree, and finally to a PhD in New Testament studies. And she has written this book. And I wanna share with you something she said that I think is just helpful. Uh, Claire Smith says this, if the difficulty of a passage of scripture was decided by the heat of the debate surrounding it, or the number of books written on it, or the number of people attending seminars on it, 1 Timothy chapter two, must be one of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible. And given that much of the debate and most of the books concentrate on just two of the 15 verses, we would have to conclude that these two verses must be almost impossible to understand. And I think that's quite amusing. Uh, First Timothy 2 may be a brief chapter, but it is a challenging chapter, and one that I think yields in its complexity if we would simply approach it as we would any passage of scripture by reading not just two single verses and forming conclusions, but by reading it in context by taking the chapter as a whole, recognizing that the chapter is preceded by another chapter and followed by another, and that in the whole letter of 1 Timothy, there's purpose. And when we take all of those, and that's gonna be my aim this morning, just to walk through this passage as I would normally any passage of scripture with you on a Sunday morning, because I think taking it in context makes this, you know, impossible uh, Mount Whitney of a passage into something that's very much easier to understand than the press would say about it. So I hope you have your Bibles open with me to 1 Timothy chapter two, and I wanna start with the first two verses. Paul writes this, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You'll notice uh, in the notes that are in your bulletin that I've kind of outlined this is what does it mean to find peaceful and quiet lives? Because that's how Paul introduces the chapter. This is the theme that he's going to lean into. And he begins by giving us a description of the importance of a stable society. He says, first of all, then, I want you to notice that this passage begins with the word then. And this lets us know that what follows is actually dependent on what precedes it in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, without walking through the entire chapter, I will summarize by saying that Paul... Here is going to charge Timothy two things. He's going to charge him to resist false teaching. We see this in verses 3 through 7, and then at the end of the chapter in verses 18 through 20. And between those two sections of warning about false teaching, he's going to highlight the gospel. The gospel of God's grace toward sinners, God's grace towards sinners whom Paul said, of whom I am chief. So these two themes are going to encompass chapter one. Watch out for false teaching and remember the gospel. And as we come to chapter two, he says, first of all then, based on watching out for false teaching and the power of the gospel... And what follows is going to carry forth from it. In other words, you could say, therefore, it is in light of the gospel and the need to defend it that Paul is going to urge Timothy and the believers in Ephesus to whom he is writing to make it their priority to make supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving for all people, particularly for kings and those who are in authority. And that begs the question, why does Paul admonish Timothy so strongly that they are to pray like this? And I believe the answer to that question is this, because social stability, because a society that is upright and even-keeled and ordered, social stability is a blessing. And when the gospel impacts the leaders of a society those positions of power that that order and lead civil discourse when the gospel impacts the leaders it has a way of filtering downward to the benefit of all a just and stable society is a better society for everyone who dwells in it particularly for Christians who have been called to live quiet, godly lives. And when a society is stable, we have the permission, the capacity to do that, to live stable and godly lives. Second, Christians are to pray these prayers that are pleasing to God because God wants all to be saved. Look with me at verses three and four. Paul writes, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants all people to be saved. Somebody say amen. God doesn't only love and desire for some people to come to know him. God's heart of benevolence and love is that everyone would come to know him, to come to place their faith in him, to receive forgiveness for their sins. That is the benevolent heart of God toward mankind. And God wants us to join him in that task in a particular way. He wants us to join him in prayer. God asks us to pray, and when we pray for the salvation of others, we are praying a prayer that reflects the very heart of God. How amazing is that? We read in other places, you want your prayers answered? Pray in keeping with God's will. To them who pray in accordance with God's will, it will be granted. And, and, and here we have this promise that if we are people who will do as Paul is commanding the believers in Ephesus, who Ephesus, which was a booming Roman city packed with people, lots of spiritual diversity, and Paul says to them, you need to pray. Pray for people to come to know the Lord. Pray for the rulers. Pray for the kings. And as we are involved in that kind of ministry, we will be helping to live out the blessings of a stable society because when God answers prayer for people to come to know him and for leaders to be influenced, society becomes much more ordered. And the next thing we're gonna see is that Paul gives the reason that praying for the gospel to work even in a city like Ephesus is powerful. And he's gonna focus here on the nature, the universal reach of the gospel itself. Look at verses five and six. He says, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time, Paul reminds this group through Timothy and the people in Ephesus, he reminds them of this truth. There's only one way to God, and it's through the Savior, Jesus Christ. There's only one Savior, there's only one mediator, there's only one ransom that has been paid for all people all people come to God the very same way. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, you come to God the same way. It doesn't matter if you're a king or a pauper, you come to God the same way. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or red or pink, you come to God the same way. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, You come to God, isn't that the power of the gospel? It is the same thing for all of us. And that is why the gospel is the answer to division in society. That is why the gospel is the answer to racism. That is why the gospel is the answer to division and infighting, because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come the same way. All of us. And Paul revels in the power of the gospel that through faith in Christ, people come to God. And that is why in verse 7, Paul is going to move on to his particular calling of God, which was to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul's ministry was different than the other apostles. Paul's ministry was to non-Jewish people, the Roman world of his day, to the gospel beyond the Holy Land. And it was Paul's cross-cultural ministry from a Jew to non-Jews that was itself a demonstration of the universal reach of the gospel. And, and he's been telling us there is one God and that one God has one gospel and that gospel is not captive to social boundaries. I think that Paul's understanding of the universal reach of the gospel is perhaps best explained for us in another letter that he wrote. I put the verse in your notes, a very familiar verse, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying in Galatians the same thing he's saying here. There is one way to God and it applies equally to everyone. We all come to God on the exact same basis. In Galatians, he's writing about the power of the unity of the body of Christ because we come together. You may know that that verse, Galatians 3.28, is what some have called the silver bullet verse uh, in the debate on men and women and their roles in the church. Um, the, those who would uh, argue for an egalitarian understanding of Scripture would say, see, there is no male or female, we are one in Christ. And they would use that verse to trump anything that teaches role distinctions for men and women, and at times, I feel like they'll use that verse to erase other verses out of the scriptures. But the simple meaning of Galatians 3.28 in its context is not that the distinctions between people are erased, that is not what Galatians three twenty eight is teaching. What it is teaching is that it is highlighting the unity of the gospel and its power to reach everyone equally. But it's not saying that there's no difference between those things. Here's how I know that. Because Paul, when he taught in the New Testament to Jews who came to put their faith in Christ, you know what he told them? Keep obeying the law, you Jew. You're in Christ. But keep the ceremonial law. Keep keep the holidays. Keep doing that stuff. I know that we are in Christ, but that's your background. Gentiles, when you come to Christ, don't obey the law. Jews, you keep doing the the law. That's our calling and our people. He didn't erase the distinctions. When, When a person who was enslaved came to faith in Christ, what did Paul tell that slave to do? He told them, You serve your master as though you were serving the Lord Jesus because you actually are. You continue in the state that God has placed you in. You don't try to extricate yourself from that by any and every means, but you remain content in the state to which God has called you. He did not erase the distinctions between slave and free in the rest of his teachings, nor did he erase the distinctions between men and women. Men and women are different. Men and women are called to different functions. What Galatians 3.28 teaches us is that no matter who you are, you come to God in one and only one way, just like everyone else. Do you see that, church? That's the power of the gospel. With the remainder of this chapter now, Paul is going to address those Who are united in the gospel by addressing two distinct groups in the church. He's going to address men first, and then he is going to address women. He's going to talk to both groups about what it means, as he introduced in verse 2, to live godly and dignified in every way in society. And the first thing we're going to see about men, and you can write this down, is that men are called to live lives that are marked by holiness and prayer. And he does this in verse 8 of chapter 2. Paul writes this, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. I want you to note in verse 8 a second occurrence of the word then. I desire then. In other words, I desire based on what has come before this, about the, the joy of living in a properly ordered and stable society. Men, your function in God's design and order for stability, social stability, is going to this. Guys, you need to lift holy hands in prayer without anger and quarreling. What does it mean to lift holy hands? And that would mean that your lives need to be holy, So that when you pray, you are coming to God in a right spirit, with a right heart, that you're not out of sync with your worship demonstration, that your worship demonstration rather would be completely congruous with your heart. That you're praying as a holy individual, and that as you come to pray and lift your hands before God, you would do so in a condition where you are walking with God and in sync with God. And furthermore, Paul is instructing here men about what they are to do when. Believers gather together. And I think that this is evident with the phrase in verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. That in every place. This is referring to the spread of the gospel in society as Christian communities began to pop up. We see this phrase, in every place, used frequently in the New Testament to speak of the spread of the gathering of believers in assemblies, in communities. We see it in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter two. We see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter one. I've included in your notes. uh, So obvious uh, a citation from 1 Corinthians one. Notice that verse. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. So this command, in every place, has in its conception that gatherings of believers is the context, that it's the assembled body of the church, the assembly of the congregation. That is where men are to lift holy hands in prayer. As we consider the debate, many would take what we haven't come to yet and would say, well, that's not for every church. That was just for a particular thing in a particular church at a particular moment. And that's part of how they confine and give what I think is a wrong context to Paul's teaching. I would say to you this, that's not at all what this is saying. These are instructions given to believers who gather in every place. This was not just instruction, For Ephesus, this was instruction for all gatherings of believers, that everywhere believers gather, men were to come and lift holy hands in prayer. How will Christian men contribute to a properly ordered and stable society? They will do it this way. Men, you need to be men of prayer. But Paul isn't just asking that prayers be offered, but also that the manner in which those prayers are offered, the manner must be consistent with the gospel. It is to be offered by godly men. Those who are praying are to lift their hands in sincere and urgent prayer for all people, and they're to be at peace with God and peace with others. This is how men contribute to a stable social Environment And the holiness that Paul is commanding men is to be a holiness <clears throat> that is characterized by the absence of anger and quarreling. I do not think that's coincidental. Guys, how many of you in your lifetime have struggled with anger? Just lift your hand up. It's nearly universal. And Paul is admonishing the men, and I think he's identifying perhaps the most common struggle that we as men have. And he says, you need to come and you need to pray, lift holy hands, your heart needs to be in keeping with your mouth that you're a godly guy, and when you come, how will you contribute to a, 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 an ordered society, to social stability, that you will come to God and you will do so in the absence of anger and quarreling men? You got you to gotta take that impulse to anger and you need to work on it. You need to fight against it. You need to discipline yourself regarding it. You need to bow in repentance before God and ask him to remove that anger from your heart. And you need to quit being an angry man and you need to be a composed and godly man instead. If men would quit with the selfish, sinful reactions of anger, oh, how much better would our society be that we would be men of decorum and self-control. And Paul is admonishing men, guys, this is your battleground to work on. He orders that men would come to, I desire that in every place, men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And now, having addressed the men in verse 9, he's going to turn to the ladies. And he says in verse 9, likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. As Paul turns now to women and is going to talk to them about how they would contribute to an ordered society, to stay, to social stability, Paul is going to say ladies that I'm going to say it this way that your talk and your walk need to go together that there needs to be harmony between what you say and what you uh, aspire to and how you live your lives. His instruction to you ladies is not on anger management as it was to the men, but rather he's going to talk to you about your presentation, about your conduct and your demeanor. And he's going to say this ladies, dress modestly. Your appearance, ladies, shouldn't be brash or provocative or showy. But your behavior, like your dress, is to show restraint and modesty and to model good judgment and self-control. This is what God wants from you, ladies. And and he recognizes that in addition to understanding how you present yourselves in the assembly of the church and in society in general, he wants you to be proactive in doing good. He says, here's what I want to draw attention to you. Not how you look and dress, but how you live. There's to be a visible correlation between your talk and your walk. Ladies, somebody say amen. Amen. Your life needs to reflect the fact that you are a worshiper of God. It ought to be evident in you. And this brings us to the two verses that have been the focus of so much of the debate on women in ministry. uh, Verses 11 and 12. There has been so much said and written and dialogued about about the understanding and application of these 29 words in our Bible. Only 19 words in the Greek New Testament. And this has been the powder keg of society. All right, ladies, take a breath with me. Verses 11 and 12. Paul writes... Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Paul writes in verse 11, Let a woman learn. That's very straightforward. Come at, let a woman learn. How is she to learn? Paul explains, she is to learn quietly with all submissiveness. At the very least, this part of the verse tells us that women are to be part of the learning process. Uh, he, He introduced this way back in verse four. Women are to come to a knowledge of the truth of the gospel as part of the learning process, but they are to come to that knowledge in a certain way. As they come to the knowledge of the gospel and their growth in the gospel, they are to come to that knowledge not by challenging or disputing what is taught, but rather they are to have minds that are willing to learn and hearts that are ready to obey. And like their manner and their dress and their conduct in general, their manner of learning is to display A quiet decorum. And following his instruction about what women are to do when teaching occurs, this comes as an instruction, but they are also told about what women are not to do. Paul says they are to learn, but he says they are not to teach or exercise authority over a man. At face value, these verses are saying that learning and teaching are two different activities. One is okay for women, the other is not. In the specific, and I want you to hear this, he's talking about the specific situation being addressed in this chapter. And that specific situation being addressed is the public community gathering of the body of Christ, the church. When we come together in every place, when the believer's body, the the church comes together, that it is in that context that these instructions and these verses are saying that when it comes to teaching in the gathered Christian community, that the women are to keep quiet, that they are not to be the teaching te- teachers. Teaching is someone else's responsibility, not theirs. Now, I want to take a breath here. And I wanna remind you of something. Paul is not saying that women are not competent to teach. And Paul is not saying that women should never teach. Because as we are aware of the rest of scripture, we know that the Bible encourages women to teach. The Bible encourages women to teach other women and children specifically. And we see that in Titus and Ephesians and 1 Timothy. We know that Paul commended Timothy and Timothy's own instruction because he he calls Timothy a great leader in the church who had received formerly from his mother and his grandmother great amounts of teaching. And Paul, furthermore, urges all believers to teach and encourage one another as they sing together. And as we have seen, women are included in activities in the Christian assembly that have kind of the the side effect or, 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 or the potential of teaching, such as when women would prophesy in the church, both Old Testament and New, and also when women would pray. All of those contexts can involve a form of teaching, but those activities are not what Paul has in view in First Timothy 2. What he has in view in 1 Timothy 2 is a certain sort of teaching in the Christian community gathering, and that sort of teaching women are not to do. Now, it's amazing the nature of the disparity. In uh, Claire Smith's book, she writes, I thought this was so interesting, She said that in her homeland of Australia, she was involved in the debate on whether women should be ordained to the ministry, pastoral ministry in her country. And a young non-Christian reporter interviewed her and asked her, "Miss Clare, is there a verse in the Bible that says that women should not be ordained in the congregational leadership? And she said, yes, there is. And she quoted verses 11 and 12, that women should keep silent in the church, that I do not permit a woman to teach or, or have authority over a man. And the reporter said, what was that verse? And she quoted it again, and the reporter wrote the verse down and stood there looking at her notepad, and Claire uh, Uh, Smith was readying herself to then explain the verse but the young reporter stood there looking at the words she had scribbled down from Claire's memory and she said not can you explain that to me she said well what's the argument about then I I would have thought that if that's what the Bible says that settles it doesn't it and she said "That's, that's the very issue and that night on the local news report on the debate over women in ministry that reporter printed those verses out on the screen of the news report and said here's why some believe women should not be ordained because that's what the bible says doesn't that just blow your mind would that ever happen in our country man It seems that we've lost the capacity to simply accept the teachings of Scripture as they appear to us, and we fight back. Paul is going to go on from here, and he's going to explain why he gives this command regarding women in ministry, and his explanation is going to go back to the very first few chapters of the Bible, and two reasons from the book of Genesis. Notice with me verses 13 and 14. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And you know what? When you check that citation with Genesis 2, we find out that Paul was right. That's exactly what the book of Genesis tells us. Paul is not pulling some kind of exegetical rabbit out of a hat here when he says, Here's why women are not to teach and have authority in the church. He's simply reporting what the book of Genesis tells us about man and woman. The man was formed first, and the woman did sin first. Genesis makes it clear that both man and woman sinned, but their sins occurred in different ways. Eve was deceived. Adam sinned knowingly. That's the distinction. Eve sinned first. Adam followed her. Eve was deceived by the serpent and led into sin. And after she ate, she also led her husband into sin. And I think this is Paul's point. You know what happened at the fall of man, the roles that God assigned to the man and woman got switched. Because Adam was charged to be the spiritual leader in the relationship with his wife. Adam was to lead Eve. Eve wasn't supposed to lead Adam. But when Eve sinned, she led Adam and he sinned willfully. And I think this is exactly Paul's point in this text. It was a reversal of the created nature of their relationship because Adam was supposed to lead, not vice versa. Eve was led by the serpent into sin, and then she led her husband into sin. Adam was supposed to lead in their relationship, but... Here he became a follower of his wife. And the pattern of male leadership and female submission that God had first established in Eden is, as Paul is saying here, to be the pattern for the Ephesian church Why are women not to teach and have authority? Because it's a role reversal if they do that. Not that women are less qualified or incapable because many women are amply qualified and super capable, but it's because in the original creation, God said in this way, these two absolutely equal individuals will have different function. And the man is to have a leadership responsibility for his wife and similarly in the church, Men are tasked with a particular kind of leadership. This does not say that women are less intelligent or less gifted or less useful or more gullible or somehow inferior because they're not. These are not the reasons given for the command. Paul doesn't say anything about women's capabilities in these verses. And it's clear elsewhere that he recognizes their capabilities and he values them and the God-given abilities that, and contributions of women in the progress of the gospel and the life of the church. It's absolutely clear. But here, it's because of God's created purposes for men and women and because of the events of the fall that the contribution of women in the Christian assembly is to be different from those of men. I can summarize it this way. When Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority, what he has done is he has identified the two primary responsibilities of elders in the church. Elders are to teach and to have authority. That is why as soon as this passage is done, the very next verse is on the qualification of elders. Paul is going to explain what a man's life must look like if he is to teach and have authority. It's not that a woman can't teach at all, as too many people have understood. That's not what the Bible says. But they cannot teach and have authority, which was Paul's way of saying they cannot be pastors. This is why the qualification for elders, an elder must be the husband of one wife. It's restricted to men. And some of you may say, Pastor Tim, not everybody sees it that way. And I'd say, I know. And they say, Pastor Tim, there's lots of churches that have women pastors on staff. And I would say, I know. Pastor Tim, some of them are really good churches and I have great friends, or I was in a church like that for a long time and it was a great experience, I know. I know that. But I would say this, that as I read scripture is a violation of God's order. And women shouldn't be pastors, shouldn't. Not because men are better, because they're not. (laughs) Somebody say amen to that. (laughs) They're not, it's just the assignment from God. All the way back to the book of Genesis. It's the creation order. That is why women should not teach and have authority. They shouldn't be pastors. As if we've gotten through the worst of it, though, there's there's even a harder one to follow. Look at verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. What? What? Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is a hard passage. And I will tell you this. Are women saved by having babies? And the answer is no. That's, that's not how you get saved. The Bible's clear that that's not a condition of salvation. Boy, somebody say amen to that, right? Right? You don't have to go through that, thank you, Lord. You don't have, that's not the process of salvation. But he's saying something here. He didn't just make this up, but women shall be saved through childbearing. I want to show you another verse because I think this verse is helpful. He uses the same language. And this occurs a couple chapters later in verse 4. And Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by, doing, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Question, was Paul telling Timothy that Timothy was gonna save the people in the church there in Ephesus? And the answer is no. I mean, Timothy didn't save them. God is the author of salvation. God is, Jesus is the savior, not Timothy. But he's telling Timothy something, and I think what he's saying is this. Timothy, do your job, Do what you have been called to do, which is guard against false teaching and teach what is true. And if you do that, in a sense, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. In a similar way, I I think this is what verse 15 is saying. Ladies, do what God made you to do. Uh, Dwell in his assignment for your gender and in submitting yourself to that created purpose, you will be saved. It's don't hate what, God made you a woman, don't hate that. God made you a woman, embrace that, love it. There's a a beautiful lane of traffic for women in society, that's your lane, like love that lane and do that lane. And don't, don't despise whom God has made you to be and how God has made you to function. And that if you would do that, ladies, you would contribute greatly to an ordered society. You would contribute greatly to what it means to have lives that are marked by peace and quiet. Ladies, you don't have to have kids to be saved. But you should be content with the roles and responsibilities that God has ordained for you And that might mean having children, or it might not. And it might mean getting married, or it might not. But however your life unfolds, women are to be content with the patterns of relationship between men and women that God has instituted for our good. And by all means, ladies, teach, but not in the way that the pastors, the elders do with authority given from God because that is their role. There should be a distinction in your teaching. In a couple weeks we're gonna do a Q and A night because I imagine there's a few uh, good follow-up questions on what this means and and I want us to have a time to lean into those, but for now I'm gonna ask you to join me in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the power of this passage of scripture that is so uh, volatile in so many ways that people have argued about it and debated on it, and yet, Lord, as we walk through it in its context, the sense seems so much simpler to me and more clear of what you've called us to do and to be. Lord, I thank you for the purpose with which you have created men and women. And I thank you for the functions that you have given them that are different, that we are perfect complements one to another. And I pray that we would esteem the valuable contribution of women, though in this passage, Paul makes clear they're not to be pastors. Lord, thank you. The church would not exist without women. We would not have the power of the gospel without women. May we never forget that. May the women of the church, Lord, be affirmed and esteemed in their own hearts as you have intended that they would be. And may we listen well to your spirit. It's in the name of Jesus I pray, amen. Well, good morning, faithful 1030 folk, good to see you. Uh, Please take your Bibles and open them with me. This morning to First Timothy chapter 2. We have been uh, working our way through a series this month that I've titled uh, The Bible's Blueprint for Women in Ministry. And over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at uh, what does the Bible uh, say women did in the Old Testament times? And then last Sunday, uh, same question, what did women do in the New Testament era as we read the scriptural records? And I think it's fair to say that the ways that women served in both Old and New Testaments are significant contributions to God's work and kingdom. They are somewhat surprising in the impact and importance of the things that women did both in Uh, advancing kingdom initiatives and in teaching and all the things that we see women doing. You'll notice this morning that I've titled my message, What Does This Really Mean? Because we are going to be looking at 1 Timothy 2, one of the most difficult Uh, passages of scripture. I have probably never preached a more challenging, divisive passage in my 28 years serving this church than this message this morning. Doesn't that just set the table? So I wore my best tie and uh, I thought, you know, I, I better try to look as good as I can and we'll venture carefully into uh, something, let me, let me begin by showing a couple of, uh, I think, significant quotes. This first quote comes from Dr. Albert Moeller, probably one of the most prominent evangelical scholars in our country today. And this is an old quote, I think, from 2004. And Dr. Moeller said this, the gender issue may well be the critical fault line for contemporary theology uh, he was looking at this issue and seeing what has been happening in culture the shifts that have happened in society and the impact on the church and he said almost 20 years ago this seems to be to be the fault line this is going to be a, an issue that's going to divide this is going to be an issue that good people are going to have different opinions about And he explains controversies over these issues involve basic questions of biblical authority, God's order and design for creation and Christ's purpose for the church. And actually, I I brought some examples of uh, what I've been doing in my study in this series. These are some of the best books that are really Uh, committed to the particular passage we're going to look at this morning. This first tome is called Women and the Church. This is an exposition of 1 Timothy 2 verses 9 through 15. So six verses of scripture. This book is so significant because it first appeared in uh, 1995. Now, it's rare that a whole book is written on a very small section of scripture, but they had wanted to approach, they felt like this passage was important enough, it, it deserved a singular work, and this is, a a Mount Rushmore of scholarship applied to understanding this passage. It it was first published in 1995. Ten years later, they rewrote the book and brought it out in a second edition. And 10 years after that, in 2016, they rewrote the book and published a third edition. This is like unheard of in Christianity. Books like this don't often sell well. This one has been a uh, real stalwart in understanding the matters. Uh, This book is called God's Design for Man and Woman. This is written by two scholars who are married to one another, Andreas and Margaret Kostenberger. I think they teach like at Midwest Baptist Seminary, Um, back east and she teaches women's ministry and he teaches in biblical studies and they've written an exhaustive book on that and then this is an older work um, edited by John Piper and Wayne Grudem called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. This was one of the first books that came out in this theme and then I have a fourth book which is pretty recent but was so good And it's a a book by uh, Claire Smith called God's Good Design, What the Bible Really Says About Men and Women. And I want to share a quote from her regarding the passage in question. She writes this. She says, If the difficulty of a passage of Scripture was decided by the heat of the debate surrounding it, or the number of books written on it, or the number of people attending seminars on it, 1 Timothy 2 must be one of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible. And given that much of the debate and most of the books concentrate on just two of the 15 verses, we would have to conclude that these two verses must be almost impossible to understand. Isn't that something? There has been so much ink printed on helping believers understand what on earth was Paul saying when he authored chapter two of his first letter to Timothy. First uh, Timothy two is a brief chapter. It's a chapter that Paul wrote to Timothy who was serving the church in Ephesus at the time. And he wrote them to understand some things, but I would say that this chapter is a powder keg of instruction with enough explosives to blow up any friendship and many churches. And we just find a hot field of debate going on with what is in here, which means that approaching it with you this morning is something that I have labored over and prayed over uh, with some concern, to be fair. And I wanna tell you what we're gonna do this morning I want to approach this text carefully, but in a rather straightforward manner, appropriate to any reasonable dialogue. I want us together to listen to God's word, uh, having open hearts and discerning minds. And my desire is that the Lord would show us together what he wants us to understand about him and his ways. I'm going to approach this chapter like I do almost any chapter, trying to look at it in its context and help us understand together. And one of the things that I note about this passage is that it is introduced to us with the theme of finding peaceful and quiet lives. Look with me at 1 Timothy 2, the first two verses. <clears throat> Paul writes, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Why does Paul write this chapter? He's writing so that his hearers might find dignified, peaceful, and quiet lives. And because of that, I want to uh, frame these introductory verses around what I see as Paul's instructions for prayers to be offered. And those prayers seem to me to be indicative of the necessity of having a stable, an ordered society in which we live. It seems to me this is what Paul begins with. Notice in verse one, he says, first of all, then. You see the word then, and that means that what he is about to say is contingent on what precedes it. So the question is, what precedes 1 Timothy two? Answer, church, 1 Timothy one. Right, And in First Timothy 1, what does Paul write about? And I don't want to walk through it specifically, but I'll give you what I think it's dealing with. In First Timothy 1, Paul charges Timothy to resist false teachings. We see this in verses 3 through 7, and at the end of chapter 1 in verses 18 through 20. Resist false teachings. Teaching, And in the intervening verses between the beginning and the end, he seems to be writing, highlighting the gospel of God's grace towards sinners. So two things, the power of the gospel towards sinners, Paul said, I'm the chief one, and the need to fight against, to resist false teachings. Therefore, when we come To chapter 2 and his admonitions for prayer, the prayers that he's calling for are in light of the need to correct or to avoid false teaching and to recognize the universal power and reach of the gospel to all sinners. And he says here that these prayers... It's based in light of the gospel and the need to defend it. Paul urges Timothy and the Ephesian believers to make it their priority to make, he says, supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving for all people, particularly for kings and those who are in authority. And the question is, why are we to make these supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings, especially for those in authority? And the answer is because social stability, having a stable society, is a blessing from God. That when the gospel impacts even the leaders of a society, those who are in positions of power, and based on that impact, the gospel then begins to filter downward to benefit all of the citizens in society, that is a good thing. That is what results in a stable and a just society, a society that is better for everyone, particularly for Christians whom it gives freedom then to live godly, quiet lives. So Paul says pray, pray for those in authority because we want the gospel to be that which is going to create kind of an atmosphere over our society. We want a stable and structured society. The second thing that I see Christians are to pray Because these prayers are pleasing to God and because God wants all to be saved. Look at verses three and four. He continues, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants all people to be saved. That is God's benevolent heart attitude. The Lord is willing that none should perish, but that everyone would come to everlasting life. Question, does everyone get saved? Answer, no. But God's benevolent heart toward mankind is that they would. He would that all be saved, but that's a decision each person must make for themselves, whether to repent and believe. But Paul is acknowledging that God's heartbeat is that he wants everyone to be saved, and so he's calling on the believers in Ephesus under Timothy's teaching to begin to pray. Pray for others and pray particularly for leaders in society so that the gospel will do its work, that more people will come to saving faith. And he wants them to understand that The reason that this praying is great, the reason that this praying is powerful is because of the universal reach of salvation. Look at verses five and six. He says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. He says there is one way to God. There is one Savior. There is one mediator. There is one ransom that has been paid for all people. He's he's correcting this note. He says there's not one God for Jewish people, Jewish background believers, and another God for non-Jewish background people, No, there's one God, there's one way to God and it is through that one ransom and one sacrifice of Christ. Jews and Gentiles come to God in the same way. Kings and paupers come to God in the same way. It's that one ransom that was paid that is perfectly suited to all people Everyone comes to God in the same way. Listen to me, in our culture today, this is important, we all come to God the same way. We believe and we repent and it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you are black or white or, or Asian or pink or whatever you are, you come to God the same way. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you grew up in the church or you didn't, we all come to to God the same way. Somebody say amen. Amen. This is the gospel. And Paul is focusing on the unity that the gospel brings in society when people respond. And it doesn't matter who you are, we all come to God in the same way. And that gospel message is perfectly suited to every kind of person that exists because we all come through faith in Christ. And this is why Paul, in verse 7, is going to move on to talk about his calling as an apostle. Look at verse 7. He says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul was accosted, criticized by Jewish background believers who didn't understand why he a Jew would take the gospel to non-Jewish people. When we read the book of Acts, he was followed and his ministry was was attacked and they tried to cause division at Paul's teaching. We see Paul having to come back from his first missionary and report before the elders in Jerusalem and, and fight for the reasonable expectation that Gentiles didn't have to become circumcised in order to be saved. Because some of the Jews were saying, if you want to be part of us, then let's get the knife and make you look like one of us. And Paul's like, wait, 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 they're not Jews. Why would they do that? That's not for, that was for us, not for them. And Paul is identifying the fact that his ministry was universal in nature because the gospel was for all people and not just for Jews. It is this universal nature of the gospel message that marked Paul's apostolic calling to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. His cross-cultural ministry had everything to do. It was a demonstration of the very universal nature of the gospel. This one God has one gospel for all people, not captive to any social boundary, but the gospel is for all. This may be nowhere more clearly expressed by Paul than in another verse that I put in your notes this morning, Galatians chapter three and verse 28. Notice there, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's declaration of the unifying nature of God's kingdom and the gospel. The gospel brings us all together without distinction of who we are. In the debate over the role of women in God's church, this verse, Galatians 3.28, um, has been called the silver bullet verse of those who would argue for an egalitarian understanding where there's no distinction in roles between men and women for today. And they would say, see, look, Galatians 3.28, there's no male and no female. We are all one in Christ. And they use that verse to simply uh, override any other passage that teaches anything different. Or I I think, sadly, they try to use this verse to erase some of the verses that teach a distinction. They say, see, there's no distinction. Here's how I'd respond to that. That's not what Galatians 3 is talking about. Galatians 3 is talking about the unity of the gospel and the unity of people in Christ. But it doesn't mean literally that there are no longer Jews nor Greeks because I would say this. What did Paul say to Jewish people who came to faith in Christ? He said, keep the law. You know, be circumcised. Celebrate the the festivals, uh let, let's, let's continue, because this is how God brought us to him. He has taught us through the law. Keep the law. What did Paul say to Gentiles who came to faith in Christ? He said, don't keep the law. That's not for you. It's not yours to do. It's for the Jews, not for you. He, he maintained the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles throughout his ministry, even though they equally come to God. What was Paul's counsel to slaves who were who were new men and women in Christ. He said, serve your master as though you're serving the Lord. He didn't tell them run away from that slavery, escape it, do whatever you can because slavery is bad, which it is. But he said, listen, you need to be content with the state that God has called you in and you need to serve your master as though you're serving the Lord. If he will let you go free, that's great. Take advantage of it. But if they won't, then serve well, serve admirably. If if the distinction between Jews and Gentiles continued after Galatians 3.28, if the distinction between slave and free continued after Galatians 3.28, then the distinctions between men and women continued after Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28 does not teach that there is no longer distinctions, but that there is unity in the gospel. I hope that makes sense to you, because that's an important understanding in this passage. The gospel is the great unifier. The gospel makes us equal in Christ, though it still recognizes distinct roles and functions in society. They they say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come to God in the same way. And I see that's what Paul's teaching. He's teaching in these opening verses all these things that will contribute to a stable society. It's why we are to pray. It's why we are to pray for our leaders. And it's why the gospel is so significant with the remainder of chapter 2 now, Paul will address those who are united in the gospel by addressing two distinct groups. He's going to address men and then women. And he's going he's gonna to try to explain what it means for men and women to be godly and dignified in every way, as he introduced in verse 2. And for men, in verse 8, he says this. Write this down. Men are called to lives... Of holiness in prayer. First Timothy 2.8, Paul writes, "I I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Notice again the use of the word then. I desire then, meaning that what he's saying is based on what precedes it. It's based on the gospel and the need to defend it against false teaching, and it's based on the ways that men will contribute to a stable society. How will they do that? Well, Paul is going to explain that they do that by praying, lifting holy hands. Lifting holy hands means that your life needs to be holy, that when you pray, You are coming to God in a right spirit with a right heart that your prayers and your life are not out of sync with one another but they are in sync that you are a godly man who is praying furthermore Paul is instructing on what Christians should do when they come together at public gatherings of the church and this is evident in that phrase in verse 8 in every place. I desire that in every place. That particular phrase is significant. Paul will use that that description of in every place to talk about the growth of the kingdom in the early days of the church. He will use that specific language in 1 Corinthians 1, in 2 Corinthians 2, in 1 Thessalonians 1. And I included in your notes the recitation of the verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 note what it says Paul writes there to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place same phrase Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he uses that phrase, in every place, he's speaking of the public gatherings of believers. Men are to pray, lifting holy hands, and he's specifically saying that in relation to the gathering of the body. This is important because one of the arguments against what we will find in Paul's instructions to women in a few moments, they'll say, well, that... That's not, for, that's not for us. That was for a particular group of women in a particular place at a particular time only. And there's lots of conjecture about what might have been present in Ephesus that would have caused Paul to give the instructions to women that he's about to give them but the reality is that in Paul's instructions he has for the men made it clear this happens in every place that believers gather not just in Ephesus but in Ephesus and Corinth and Thessaloniki and everywhere that believers meet together in the gospel in every place this is to take yeah, this is to be the pattern he says in every place men should pray lifting holy hands. And then he finishes the instruction without anger or quarreling. How will men contribute to proper living in society? Guys, you need to be men of prayer. But he's not just asking for any kind of prayer. He's asking for prayers to be offered that are consistent with the gospel. They're to be offered by godly men And those who are praying are going to be sincere and urgent in their prayers for all people, that they would find God's peace, that they would be saved by the gospel. And then he adds that this kind of prayer is to be characterized by the absence of anger and quarreling. Why would Paul say that in every place, men need to pray, and when they do that, they've got to leave anger and quarreling behind. And I want to tell you that it's my perspective that the struggle with anger is something that a whole lot of men struggle with. Guys, if you have if you have struggled with anger in your life, will you put your hand up right now? It's very common very very calm it's part of the baggage of being male we we struggle with this and Paul is saying listen men you want to be a godly man you want to you want to live in keeping with what God has assigned you to then you need to be a godly man you need to pray for all and those especially in authority and you need to do it checking anger and quarreling and leaving it behind you, because most men have battled in this particular war. And so, guys, it's as if Paul is saying, listen, that anger that you fought with, that anger that has caused so much havoc in your life, that anger that contributes to a disordered society, you've got to work on that. And you need to fight that spiritual battle and you need to leave that stuff at the door because that's not what God has called you to do and be. You need to be a godly man. You want a quiet and peaceful life? You better fight the fight with anger and quarreling in your own heart. And if you do that, you will be well on your way to know what it is to live in the kind of existence that God has really meant for you to have, to be a peaceful man, a wise and discerning man, a godly man who doesn't drive everyone away from you because of your nasty attitude, but a man who finds victory over his flesh and fights the fight against anger and quarreling. This I see as Paul's admonition to men in general in every place that men gather. And he's going to move from men now in verse 9, turning his attention to women. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. These verses say, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. And as I see these first verses of introduction, I put it this way in your notes. Women are called to align their talk, what they say, what they uh, assent to with their words, and their walk their very lives, that there needs to be an alignment between those two things. And Paul's instruction to women isn't anger management as it was with men, but rather his instruction to women is, ladies, watch your presentation. Watch your conduct and your demeanor. He tells women, ladies, you should dress modestly Your appearance should not be brash or provocative or showy. And your behavior, much like your dress, is to show restraint and modesty and to model good judgment and self-control. And beyond that, ladies, that you would pursue doing what is good. You see, what is to draw attention to you is not how you look, ladies, but how you live. And there should be a visible correlation between your talk and your walk. Your lives are to reflect the very fact that you are a worshiper of God. And this brings us to the two verses that have been the focus of so much of the debate on women in ministry. Verses 11 and 12. So much written about these two verses. Book and book and book and book to understand two verses. 29 words in the English translation. Just 19 words in the Greek which it was originally written in. And these are Paul's words. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Verse 11 opens, let a woman learn. That's very straightforward. And how is a woman to learn? She is to learn, as Paul says, quietly with all submissiveness. At the very least, this tells us that women are to be part of the learning process that Paul alluded to earlier in verse 4, that women are to come to a knowledge of the truth of the gospel, but they are to come to that knowledge in a certain way, and the way that they are to come to that knowledge is this, they are not to challenge or dispute what is being taught, but rather they are to have minds that are willing to learn and hearts that are ready to obey. Like their manner of dress and conduct generally, their manner of learning is to display a quiet decorum. And now following this explanation about what women are to do when teaching occurs, comes his instructions about what they are not to do they are to learn paul says but they are not to teach or exercise authority over a man again this is the fodder of much debate argument disagreement and faction among believers what does it mean that she's not to teach or exercise authority over a man just to take them at face value These verses are saying that learning and teaching are two different activities. One is okay for women to do, and the other is not in the specific situation that Paul is addressing here. And this is important. What is the specific situation? It's in the public community gathering of the church that meets in all places. That's the context Therefore, these verses are saying that when it comes to teaching in the gathered Christian community, that women are to keep quiet. They're not to be the teachers. Why? Because teaching is someone else's responsibility, not theirs. Let me say this. Wait, let's all take a breath, okay? (sighs) What? What? Is this all about I want you to understand this Paul is not saying that women are not competent to teach he's not saying that he's not even saying that they should never teach we know that because elsewhere in the scripture we see women teaching women teaching in particular other women and children we know that Paul commends Timothy to whom this letter is written because he he received the teaching of his mother and his grandmother. We know that Paul in other places in Colossians urges all believers to teach and encourage one another as they sing together. And we have seen that women are included in activities in the Christian community that have kind of a potential of teaching. For example, prophesying had that, and I think public praying almost had that. And so Paul's not saying that women should never teach, but he is saying that in the context that he's speaking to, the assembled gathering of local bodies, that there teachings, not their role or assignment. What is in view here is a certain kind of teaching in the Christian community that women are not to do. I want to share an excerpt from this book. Claire Smith was, she is an Australian lady, uh, a leader in women's, uh, women's seminars and teaching, and she's an author, and She's a she's a a lady who loves the Lord and decided to go to Bible college in Sydney, Australia, and she earned a bachelor's degree, and then she earned a master's degree, and she kept going, and she earned a PhD in New Testament Studies. Like this is a really smart lady. And, And this book is so helpful and winsome. And in here, she wrote about a time in Australia when there was a debate going on about whether women should be ordained. To the ministry in her country and there was a particular gathering where the debate was being handled and it was a bit of a contested hot debate and there was a young reporter not a believer who was there reporting on it and she asked Claire Smith could I interview you and she's trying to understand what was the fuss about whether women could be ordained to the ministry as pastors or not and the young reporter looked at Claire, and she said, is there a verse in the Bible that says women should not be ordained to public ministry and congregational leadership? And Claire said, yes, there are two. Let me share. And she quoted 1 Timothy 2, and 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And as Claire gave the verse, the reporter said, could you say that again? And she starts writing it down. And as Claire recites the verse again, in her mind she's saying, okay, now how am I going to explain these verses to this young, unsaved reporter? And she was readying herself for the, for the follow-up question. And as she stood there, the reporter's looking at her notes where she had written these verses down. And instead of asking her, the young reporter said to her, is that, is that what the Bible says? And Claire said, Yes. And the young reporter said, well, what's the argument about then? I would have thought that if that's what the Bible says, that settles it, doesn't it? And Claire Smith smiled. <laughs> and she said, well, you might think that, but certainly that isn't the case. That night, when the news report appeared on the news stations there in Sydney, this young reporter had her spotlight thing. She typed out First Timothy uh, 12 and 13 she typed those verses out on the screen for the news people to read saying here's what the debate is But it certainly seems that there's a very good reason that people are thinking that it shouldn't happen And I just thought that's crazy. Could you see that happening in our culture? Never and yet that's how one Unsaved person she thought those verses were pretty self-explanatory which brings us back to the question, why, why did Paul give this command? And, and he's going to take us back to a passage we looked at at the beginning of this study. He's gonna take us back to the book of Genesis. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. After saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over men, rather she is to remain quiet. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first than Eve and Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor and when we read Genesis chapter 2 we find that Paul's instruction here is absolutely correct that Adam was formed first and that Eve was deceived by the serpent and that Eve Had sinned. Paul is not pulling some exegetical rabbit out of a hat when he says these things. He's simply reporting what the book of Genesis has already said about man and woman that that man was formed first, but that woman sinned first. Genesis makes it clear that both sinned, but their sins occurred in different ways. And instead of trusting, the truthfulness of God and his word and his goodness. Eve was deceived by the serpent and led into sin, and after she ate, she also led her husband into sin. And I want you to see this, I think this is so powerful. Why is Paul explaining this prohibition about women teaching and having authority in the church from the book of Genesis? And he goes back to Genesis, and I think he's saying, look, back in Genesis, when sin came, the problem was that the roles got reversed because Adam was supposed to be the leader, but Eve ended up leading Adam into sin. The roles got switched, and that's where the whole problem began, the reversal of the created nature of their relationship, because Adam was supposed to lead Eve, not vice versa. Eve was led by the serpent into sin, and then she led her husband into sin. And Adam, who was supposed to lead in their relationship, became the follower of his wife. What we see is that the pattern of male leadership and female submission that God first established in Eden is, as Paul is saying here, to be the pattern for the Ephesian church. (coughs) He's saying that... (coughs) the disruption of that pattern seen in the fall is not to be repeated. (coughs) Excuse me. He's saying that women are not to usurp the male leadership that God has provided, but instead they should willingly accept These God-given differences in gender responsibilities, and it's not because women are less intelligent, or less gifted, or less useful, or more gullible, or somehow inferior, because they're not. These are not the reasons given for this command. Paul says here nothing about women's capabilities, and it's clear elsewhere that he recognizes the valuable and God-given gifting and contributions of women in the progress of the gospel and the life of the church. These instructions are given because God's created purpose for men and women, and because of the events of the fall, the contributions of women in the Christian assembly is to be different from those of the men. And in this text, most particularly those of men, those men that God has gifted and appointed to teach and lead in our Christian assemblies. And some of you may say, but Pastor Tim, wait a minute. I, I know of churches that have women as pastors in the churches and they seem to be good churches and I would say, I know. Pastor Tim, I have friends who are involved in churches that have women pastors and like they're good, I know. And are you saying that those churches are wrong and they shouldn't be doing what they're doing? And I say, listen, I'm not talking to anyone else, I'm talking to us. And this is what I understand. When Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority in the church over a man, he's talking about the two distinct roles that the elders of the congregation have. The elders are tasked with teaching and with having authority. When Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, he is, he is saying, I do not permit a woman to be a pastor, and he does so by identifying the two primary functions of pastors. Pastors which is teaching and having authority. It doesn't say that women can never teach anywhere. It doesn't say that women are not gifted because they are, but it says in terms of this primary leadership function in the church, God has assigned that to men. That is why, as soon as we turn the, the page on chapter two and we come to chapter three, the very first thing we encounter is the qualifications for pastors in the churches. And, and it says, an elder must be the husband of but one wife, men. It is consistent with the flow of the development of this passage. It reflects the pattern of Genesis 2, where Adam had been given a particular leadership role. As if that isn't enough, though, there's still one more verse. <laughs> and this verse even more complicated, verse 15. He says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And we can read a verse like that and say, what? (laughs) Women will be saved through childbearing? And I'll tell you this, there are There are scads of articles written about how on earth are we to understand this passage. Because in a broader, more theological conversation, are women saved spiritually by having kids? And the answer is no. You don't have to have babies to be saved. And all the men said, amen, right? That's not... the Bible's pattern, but what does it mean? And there are many guesses. Is this, some think this is a messianic claim like childbearing as in uh, Eve having kids all the way down to the birth of Christ and it could come through there. And I say, well, maybe that might be it. And there's lots of other conjectures, but I'll just tell you more straightforward and simply what I think it means. And it's because this same kind of language appears uh, in two chapters later And here Paul's writing to Timothy, and he tells him, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. See, this whole thing of false teaching seems to be a theme in this letter. Keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Question Did Timothy save the Ephesian believers? No, I would say no. That would contradict the plain teaching of Scripture about how salvation happens. Well, why does he use this language? You will save both yourself. And I think it's the same language in chapter two where women will be saved by childbearing. And I think the, the more natural way of understanding this is here's what's Paul saying Timothy, teach what is true and correct what is false, and by Discharging that responsibility that you have, both you and those who hear you will be saved. They'll know the truth. They'll do what is right. They'll function. Timothy, do what you're called to do, and that will contribute. And I think that same application fits so well here in verse 15, where ladies do what God has uniquely called you to do. Don't don't feel like you have to become a pastor in order to function, that's not what God has called of you, but you should do what you have uniquely been created to do as a woman. And there are a variety of that, perhaps, first and foremost, is bringing new babies into existence. And he says, if you will continue in faith, and love, and holiness, and self-control, do what God has uniquely called you to do, and in so doing, you will fulfill your purpose. How do we find peaceful and quiet lives? How do we, how do, we do what well, we recognize that we need to pray as God has commanded that we would have a stable and ordered society? In that stable and ordered society, guys, you need to be men of prayer, men of holiness, men who fight the fight with anger, and ladies, you need to have your talk and your walk match up. Live quietly and in submissiveness as God has called for you to do in the beauty of femininity. And to be that kind of godly woman used of the Lord in the myriad of unique things that only women can do. Ladies, you don't have to have children to be saved, but you do need to be content with the roles and responsibilities that God has ordained for you. That might mean having children, or it might not. That might mean being married, or it might not. But however your life unfolds, ladies, you are to be content with the patterns of relationship between men and women that God has instituted for our good. In particular, if married, your relationship to your husband, and in particular, in the church, allowing the pastors to be the ones who teach and have authority. And this is my understanding of the very difficult passage that we've looked at. In a couple weeks, uh, Jeremiah mentioned this morning, we're going to have a... um, a dessert fellowship on the night of the six. I think that it would only be fair, men, you have to bring the dessert, not your wife that night, right? And we're gonna come together and we're gonna have some fellowship time and we'll share the Lord's table. And I wanna have a time of question and answer because certainly there are a myriad of applications that a Sunday sermon doesn't afford but that I think we will be richly blessed to talk about openly and honestly with one another. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the fact that you have created this world in such a way that each of us, whether we are men or women, have been assigned and purposed to serve you. That, Lord, the various ways that men and women serve come together in perfect complementarity. And in so doing, in living according to your assigned roles, we would find our joy and purpose and contentment and the beauty of peace that comes from a properly ordered society and from lives that are marked by serenity. Lord, we know that in the fall, you said that part of the curse would be a fussing between men and women about who would be in charge. And we recognize that we want not to live cursed, but we want to live blessed which means living in keeping with your perfect design for men and women. Thank you for this, church. Thank you that we can talk about a pretty debated topic and and still love one another and maybe even disagree, but to do so agreeably. God, may your spirit reign and rule in the life of our church. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.